Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 119, Mutually Assured Excommunication. First, as always, thanks to our donators and patrons. Of course, thanks to uh, Jan Heinrichs for her donation. Uh, It really tells you how long I've been in Europe that I see the name J-A-N, and I think Dutch person named Jan. Uh, But no, it's an American woman named Jan. So my apologies for getting your name wrong. She sent me a nice email about that. And our new patrons, Yvonne and Anthony Johnston. Uh, Another quick announcement for those of you who are in Sofia or visiting Sofia, uh, I am now the voice of the Sofia Metro, the English language voice of the Sofia Metro. I, some months ago, recorded uh, all the kind of announcements because previously a Bulgarian woman had done them in English and her accent was a bit thick. Uh, So, you know, the the municipality wanted to have someone with a native speaker who was a native speaker and who could do it a bit more clearly. So, if, in case you're, you know, riding the Sofia Metro and having a little like weird deja vu, like that voice seems familiar. It is familiar. It is me. So yeah, that was a real pleasure to help make the city I love a little bit better. One last announcement before we get started. I mentioned Matt Grace before. Uh, so yeah, I mentioned he has that class. He's also launched a podcast and it could be cool for you guys to check out. It's called The Founders of Nations. Um, it's obviously about the people who founded various nations going in alphabetical order. And as someone with a background in nation building and nationalism studies myself, I think it's pretty interesting. And I like that there's a little pre-episode for each episode with clips from relevant podcasts, including this one for Skanderbeg, the first episode. And so, yeah, it's, it's also a nice way to kind of Here's some short little clips from other history podcasts. So it's kind of a cool way to uh, get a feel for those. So it's worth checking out. It is called The Founders of Nations. Now, let's get into it. Last time, we saw the Uniat Church grow more and more in power and prominence. Now, remember, this was a church basically following orthodoxy in every way, except also recognizing the Pope as its kind of main leader, uh, recognizing papal authority. They were therefore seen as a huge threat by Russia and the patriarchate alike because it fundamentally undermined both of their power. Now, the Uniat movement leaders at this point had asked both the Pope and the Ottomans for official recognition. Elsewhere, Wallachia and Moldavia more or less united when they managed to get the same man elected as prince of both states. Italy also unified with French help and further distracted the Austrians from the Balkans now that Austrian-controlled Venice was kind of one of the only bits of Italy not under control of the new Italian state. So Austria is moving further away from really caring much about the Balkans, particularly the Balkans as far away as Bulgaria. Lastly, Serbia, now under the Obranovic dynasty yet again, was building up its army and beginning to contest the presence of Ottoman garrisons on its territory. Rakovci is in Belgrade at the moment and still writing and discussing the possibility of Serbian assistance to mediating the ongoing kind of conflict over Bulgarian church independence. And all of this brings us to 1861. The first day of the year was all about the Union movement. On January 1st, 
Makiriol Polsky and Valeshki sent a message to the Bulgarian people. Don't know how they did this. The source I found didn't specify. I guess maybe they sent letters around to leaders appealing to the pillars of orth- for the pillars of orthodoxy to be preserved and for any Bulgarians involved to cast away the Uniat Church movement. So this kind of shows how really everyone is against the Uniat uh, Church, right? Obviously, as I said, that the Russians are against it because it undermines their ability to use orthodoxy to influence events in the Balkans and to exert some soft power. Uh, the patriarchate is against it because it takes away their power, you know, takes away their flock. But here we are now seeing that the kind of main proponents of Bulgarian church independence are also against the Uniate Church. Uh, I'm guessing, you know, they don't want Bulgarian church independence and Bulgarian churchgoers to be further divided, right? If there's, you know, standard Orthodox Bulgarians and Uniate Church Bulgarians, from their perspective, this probably makes it a lot harder for them to kind of fight as a single, you know, unit for Bulgarian church independence and for, you know, ultimately, probably, we would assume at this point, Bulgarian independence. So two days after all this, General Major Kovalevsky sent instructions to the Russian embassy in Constantinople for all Russian diplomats in Bulgarian territories, commanding them to work to preserve orthodoxy, i.e. against the Uniate Church. Again, you'll remember, Russia was very interested in expanding its power and influence and territory at the expense of the Ottomans. Their two major sources of soft power in the region, as we know, were Slavic ethnicity and Orthodox Christianity. And between the two of them, well, they had quite a bit of influence, despite the fact that you know, overall Russian influence has declined substantially since their loss in the Crimean War. So this is really even more important than it was before because they've lost a lot of their legal ways to kind of influence events in the Ottoman territories. Now, between the Slavic ethnicity and Orthodox Christianity, Russia has some tie to millions of minority community members in the Ottoman Empire, and that is valuable for them. However, the religious aspect between the Slavic ethnicity and the Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Christianity is at this moment by far the bigger focus and the, the source of more Russian influence. Even when Russia lost many of its legal rights as protector of Christians in the Ottoman realm after the Crimean War, you know, this is where they could actually have legal power over this, um, you know, they did present an opportunity for advocates of an independent Bulgarian church because they had some leverage, but well, they could say, you know, if you give us independence, we would be an alternative for the per- people looking towards the Uniate Church. And so the Uniate Church, you know, m- people advocating for Bulgarian church independence are really against the Uniate Church. But in some ways, the Uniate Church is actually benefiting them a lot because previously Russia did not want uh, Bulgarian church independence because, again, that would splinter orthodoxy and therefore make it harder for Russia to exert influence. But now that there's this scary Uniate Church threat, well, the Bulgarian independence folks are not looking so bad by comparison, and they're looking like the folks who can best kind of curb the influence of the Uniate Church. So it's an interesting kind of political dynamic there. But overall, Russia is influencing or sort of exerting its influence in the Ottoman Empire in other ways as well. Also in January of 1861, Kinaz Gorchakov, as ministry as the Minister of External Affairs in Russia, commanded Kinaz Alexei Lyubanov Rostovsky, the Russian ambassador in Constantinople, to negotiate with the Ottomans so Bulgarians could easily move to Crimea and New Russia, which was the kind of name for what's now Ukraine, right? Some of those territories just above Crimea, pointing out that 
Russia does not hinder Tatars from moving from Crimea to the Balkans, so therefore the Ottomans shouldn't hinder people in the Balkans from moving to Crimea to effectively replace those Tatars. Now, my best guess for the reasoning is this, is that you know, Russia wants a greater Orthodox population, and in particular, a greater loyal Orthodox population in these border territories. Uh, you know, it is clear that Russia was encouraging its own migration into these lands, uh, encouraging Russians to populate them so that they can get a better control over them, because obviously controlling a territory full of, you know, Muslim Tatars is a lot harder than controlling a, you know, territory that's full of Orthodox Bulgarians or Orthodox Russians. So, that's a bit of the reasoning. Also, there's economic reasons that we do know that a lot of Tatars and, and other kind of Muslim minorities were leaving these regions at the time well, because they probably didn't want to be under kind of Russian rule and for other reasons, I'm sure. This also hurt the economy, right? You, you need people working and doing things to have a decent economy there. So all these things together are encouraging the Russians to now work with the Ottomans and try to encourage Bulgarian emigration to Crimea and the territories north of it. And within about a month, the Russian ambassador in Constantinople received an answer that Bulgarian immigration to Crimea would not be you know, impeded in any way, uh, and that the Ottomans will allow Bulgarians to sell their property when they leave. But it's unclear at this point how many Bulgarians will take them up on the offer, but that door is now open. Now, overall, Russia's influence in the Balkans is clearly growing at this point. In February 16th, uh, the Bulgarian enlightener Dmitry Milodinov was arrested in Struga and imprisoned in Bitola, accused of inciting the population against the Ottoman government and encouraging Russophilia. Remember, for those people advocating Bulgarian church independence, the two main camps were those who sought Russian help and those who thought that relying on foreign powers was a waste of time and they were never going to actually follow through and help. So, you know, Russophobes and Russophiles, that's going to be an important distinction for a long time in this podcast. And this is a case where, you know, when someone is getting a little bit too Russophilic, getting a bit too kind of loud about it, the Ottoman uh, authorities are taking action. That same month in Russia, a major event happened, which interestingly enough causes a lot of confusion in Bulgaria right now. At this point in history, 1861, about 38% of the population of Russia were serfs living on private estates. Even more were living on public estates, but they won't see their serf demand for about five more years. Now, there's been an ongoing discussion in Russia about ending serfdom for about the last six decades, so the entire 19th century. But at this point, the practice still persisted. And to remind you, this is really a remnant of the Middle Ages, kind of long abandoned basically everywhere else in Europe. Maybe there's somewhere in Europe at this point where serfdom still exists. I'm not aware of it, but certainly in all the major European countries, it's long gone. Now, Russian liberals and reformers, as well as Tsar Alexander II himself, could all see that Russia needed reform following its loss in the Crimean War. However, these leaders also did not want that reform to cause instability or in particular to anger the powerful landowners. They specifically did not want a repeat of the revolutions of 1848 in Russia. You'll remember those revolutions didn't really affect Russia, and Russia was actually able to gain some leverage by helping Austria in particular deal with its own revolution. So they're very concerned, right? They know they need to reform, but they need to be extremely careful about how they go about it. Knowing Russian history since this period, you can understand why. 
Now, the compromise that they ultimately constructed was that the landowners would get access to public lands and the peasants would pay the landowners over time to get their own land. In addition, serfs and peasants could now get married without the landowner's permission and could legally buy and sell property. But overall, the main reform here is that serfdom on private lands is ending. Now, it's astonishing, really, that such a huge portion of the Russian people still didn't enjoy things like the right to get married without the person who owns the land you live on's permission. Granted, you know, the U.S. at this moment is embroiled in a civil war to end slavery. So, you know, this is happening everywhere. You know, the, the serfs were in a better position than American slaves, but still not that much better. Now, it is interesting to kind of compare the status of Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire to the Russian serfs. Now, I've mentioned before that, you know, I'd say that Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire faced better conditions most of the time. Now, this changed, as we've said many times, right? The condition of Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire fluctuated a lot over 500 years. It wasn't the same for every single day of those 500 years. But, you know, for the most part, you know, Bulgarians could get married if they wanted to. The, the Ottoman officials didn't have to give them permission. That wasn't their concern. You know, they they could own and sell property. They, they had the right to do that, while Russian serfs, at least in the private estates, probably in the public ones as well, I didn't research that as deeply, did not have that right. So, you know, just as a historical comparison thing, that's where I, I think it's interesting to, instead of just looking at like, okay, you're under uh, control of a foreign power, therefore everything is, you know, uniquely terrible for you relative to anyone else. Oftentimes people ruled by, you know, their own people, quote unquote, are maybe even in an even worse situation. Point is, yeah, it's one of the, the fundamental points of history. I think we should always keep in mind that it's always more complicated than we like to think. And when we're you know, learning history and discussing history, we always have to simplify, right? Simplification is a part of storytelling and a part of understanding anything in this world. But we have to always be aware that we're simplifying and that you know, situations are going to be complex. So getting back to Russia and serfdom, the ending of serfdom took a while to really play out. But when it did happen over the next couple of years, it did strengthen landowners and allowed for the creation of some kind of local assemblies throughout Russia. Serfs were mostly left without enough land to survive, and so this led to a lot of unrest and even small uprisings. The situation, I'd say, was a bit similar to what happened when slavery ended in the U.S., where, you know, the, the concern by in Reconstruction in the U.S. seemed to be much more in kind of helping out the slave owners than the former slaves, and a lot of those former slaves ended up becoming sharecroppers who honestly weren't in that much of a better situation than when they were slaves. Yes, they were not legally owned, but they didn't have their own land. They had to pay a lot to the owners of the land that they farmed. And as a result, it, it was almost impossible for them to move or to really improve their economic situation. And so it, it seems like at least for the moment, there's something similar going on in Russia. Serfdom has ended, but for the time being, the status of serfs is improving very little and, and only kind of gradually. But anyways, back to the main story. Towards the end of February of 1861, the Patriarchate called an assembly in Constantinople with nine former and current patriarchs attending. This proclaimed that the actions of Makiriopolsky, Plovdivsky, and Veleshki were anti-canonical and resolved to banish them from the church. Now, Christians, well, Orthodox Christians under the Patriarchate were forbidden from even speaking to them, and anyone they swore into the church organization, 
you know, as a part of their official duties as a member of the patriarchate church will be removed from their positions. So in other words, they were, they were basically excommunicated. And while the Russian Orthodox Church was hedging its bets, suddenly kind of opening up to the idea of an independent Bulgarian church as a way to combat the power of the Uniate Church, as we've talked about, the Patriarchate, (laughs) clearly in this example, is not doing so. The Patriarchate is digging in its heels and effectively excommunicating the leaders of the independent Bulgarian church movement. Now, less than two weeks later, the Bulgarian church officials hit right back. On March 5th, during a celebratory Sunday Mass, the Metropolitan of Plovdiv, Paisi, blamed the Patriarchate for going against church laws and said that all Bulgarians should shun them. In effect, he was trying to excommunicate the Patriarchate right back. Days later at Sunday Mass, in a different Plovdiv church, the Bulgarians in attendance declared that the city would not recognize the Patriarchate in Constantinople and pledged their loyalty to Makiril Polsky instead. Then, in response to the punishment of Makiriopolsky, Plovdiski, and Veleshki, many Bulgarian churches in places like Tornovo, Lovic, Silistra, Samokov, Sofia, Kustendil, Plovdiv, etc., also publicly excommunicated the Patriarchate, or the Patriarchate, the Patriarch in particular, during Sunday Mass. Soon, the Bulgarians of Constantinople sent a plea to the Minister of External Affairs for the Ottomans, arguing that the punishment of Makiriopolsky, Plovdiski, and Veleshki was unjust and asking for the Ottoman government to approve the separation of Bulgarians into a new independent Bulgarian church. So the situation was now escalating quickly and the Ottoman government decided to intervene to avoid further complications. They ordered Makiriopolsky to leave Constantinople, first going to the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara and then to a village on the Bosphorus. A few weeks later, the Plovdiv governor Effendi called Paisi, the local metropolitan, for an audience, and in the presence of two notable Bulgarians, proclaimed that by the order of the Ottomans, he had to go into exile. In other words, for now, the Ottoman response to the growing fight between the Bulgarian church, independence advocates, and the patriarchate was basically to exile the Bulgarian troublemakers. Meanwhile, while Bulgarian church leaders and the patriarchate were denouncing each other, Josef Sokolsky, a man from Gabrovo, was sworn in by the Pope himself in Rome as Archbishop of the Bulgarian Uniate Church in the Sistine Chapel. He then arrived in Constantinople to assume his duties on April 14th. But the advocates for Bulgarian church independence were not about to take this situation lying down, even if the Ottomans were favoring the Patriarchate for now. On April 19, 1861, a delegation of Bulgarians from Constantinople appeared in front of Ali Pasha, the Ottoman Minister of External Affairs, asking for permission for Bulgarian church officials to hold mass on Easter. The source didn't mention the response, but I assume it was no. The next day, Makiro Polsky arrived at the independent Bulgarian church in Constantinople where Veleshki was waiting. Remember, I mentioned them building this church a little while back. The plan was for the two of them to leave for exile in two days, but the Bulgarians of the city protested the order. Many wrote pleas to the sultan and even to the embassies of the great powers. Ultimately, the sultan agreed to allow their exile to be postponed until after Easter, but that was about all the leeway they were going to get for now. Still, though, much to the chagrin of the Ottomans, the situation only continued to escalate. By the end of April, the Plovdiv municipality called an assembly in which 200 parishioners and 60 priests confirmed their separation from the patriarchate 
and selected seven leaders, with the priest Zlatan as their head. And these leaders took over managing church affairs in Plovdiv. A few days later, the Bulgarians of Constantinople filed pleas to the ambassadors of the great powers, asking for help in establishing an independent church. Now, here I just want to point out that so far in this episode, we've only covered the first five months of 1861. So clearly this church conflict is escalating very quickly because, well, that's half an episode's worth of content, largely about these church matters. And yeah, so this is all very packed into this year, 1861. But of course, we can't talk about any five-month period without mentioning whatever Rokovsky is up to, because I'm not sure that man slept a day in his life. He was busy. In early May, he wrote a bulletin, quote, Moving to Russia, i.e. the deadly Russian political stance towards Bulgarians, my rough translation, in which he exposed the hypocritical treatment of Bulgarian immigrants by Russian authorities. So, Although Rakovsky was generally a Russophile and had spent time there and had worked to help Russia in the Crimean War and held a Russian passport, he still felt able to criticize some Russian policies. And specifically, as we know, right, the Russians are trying to encourage Bulgarians to move to Crimea. And uh, Rakovsky is pointing out that actually those Russians are not being, or the Bulgarians who are doing that are not being treated very well. Soon, Rokovsky sent his trusted colleague, uh, Stefan Ryapov, to northwestern Bulgaria to go through the larger villages and advocate against mass migration to Russia, again following the path to Crimea that had just opened. Besides their poor treatment in Russia, Rokovsky saw that when Bulgarians left their native lands, they were often replaced by foreigners, usually exiled Tatars or Circassians from Russia, ironically. And... When the kind of population balance in Russia shifted in this way, the conditions for the Bulgarians who stayed behind got worse. So Rokovsky, again, generally pro-Russian, but he saw this move as being bad for Bulgaria, and so he advocated strongly against it. But Rokovsky still had his enemies. In late May 1861, a man named Hryso Gergiev got 3,000 copies of his latest bulletin from the Bucharest printing press and destroyed them all. Rokovsky wasn't going to be deterred and pressed on. Later that summer, he actually left for Odessa to study the mindset of Bulgarian immigrants there. But now back to Constantinople. You'll remember that Josef Sokolsky was the Pope-appointed head of the Bulgarian Union Church and was in the city. Well, as we know, the Russians were ready to do just about anything to curb the growing power of this movement. So, on the 5th of June, 1861, None other than Petko Sklovekov tricked Sokolsky onto a Russian ship, which then shipped him off to Odessa. He was then shipped to Kiev and put up in a palace that was basically built for him. In essence, Russia built and then forced him into a golden cage to keep him away from, you know, running the Uniat Church. And he would live there for the rest of his life. Eventually, he would be allowed to travel to Russia-controlled Poland to conduct work for the Uniat Church there because... The unit church in Poland wasn't really a threat to the Russians because Poland was largely Catholic instead of being largely Orthodox. But he was never allowed to return to Bulgaria. Now, without its leader, particularly without a leader who has the legitimacy of being appointed by the Pope personally, the unit church movement began to quickly lose influence. Rumors of Sokolsky's kidnapping by Russian agents spread throughout the region. And a few years later, another leader would be elected to lead the Bulgarian Union Church movement, but it still couldn't really recover its lost momentum. Then, 
At this point, the Ottoman Empire was suddenly rocked by the news that its 38-year-old Sultan Abdul-Majid I had died, the same way his father had of tuberculosis. He was succeeded by his 31-year-old half-brother, Abdulaziz. For now, it seemed that Abdulaziz would continue his brother's Tanzimat reform policies, and so the empire didn't experience any major changes despite the sudden change of leadership. Now, during the summer of 1861, Bulgarian youth in Constantinople formed the, quote, Posse of the True Friends, which shared Rokovsky's revolutionary ideas. By the fall, Rokovsky himself was back in Belgrade, where Mikhail Obrenovich decided to grant him Serbian citizenship. He's just collecting those passports, uh, adding it to his Russian one. In Belgrade, he also wrote a new version of his plan for freeing Bulgaria from Ottoman rule. He foresaw a well-armed military unit of about 1,000 hand-selected and experienced soldiers with two wooden cannons, two surgeons, and a hundred cavalrymen to secretly move to Turnoval before giving the order for all Bulgarians to rise up and then to quickly intercept telegraphs and cut postal links. But for now, this is just a plan. Ironically enough, at the same time, Lubin Karavelov was working on his own revolutionary project in Moscow. His plan was for the creation of a central revolutionary organization, and this is his first revolutionary work, but again, that's just a plan for now. Now, that fall of 1861, the city of Ruse on the Danube saw some substantial changes. The Bulgarians there chose their own municipal council, which would govern the city, collect taxes, and take care of churches and schools. It was headed by the priest Nil Izvorov, which is a very silly name because it kind of sounds like the source of the Nile in Bulgarian. Anyways, shortly afterwards, the Russian Orthodox Church chose about 15 people to be legal guardians for the task of advocating for the interests of the Bulgarians of Ruse. So, clearly Ruse is kind of growing in stature and importance as a city at this time. But, while the governance was, well, governance in general was making progress in Ruse, elsewhere Bulgarians were still facing the corruption of the Patriarchate. On the 6th of December, the Metropolitan of Sofia, Dorte, commanded that the beard and hair of a Bulgarian man be cut because this Bulgarian man refused to bow to him. A local, the local Bulgarian population was furious and gathered in front of the church in response, wishing to banish Dorte. The next day, the Ottoman governor of Sofia was handed a plea from the Bulgarian population demanding that Dorte leave his position. The Ottoman authorities intervened and gave Dorte armed guards and allowed him to keep his position. In Turnival, the population selected representatives to issue a formal plea to the Grand Vizier to remove a Greek church official there, but again to no avail. Now, throughout the year, diplomatic efforts were making progress as the Ottomans signed new treaties with England, the United States, France, Spain, and Russia. The Greeks and Serbs began negotiations, secret ones to be clear, for splitting Macedonia between them, but you know, for now these are just laying the groundwork for events which will later send Bulgaria on a very ruinous path. But still, that's in the future. 1861 also saw a small independent Montenegro support an uprising in Herzegovina, in Ottoman-controlled Herzegovina. Now, if you're wondering when Montenegro became independent from the Ottomans, uh, I kind of was. I didn't remember hearing much about them for a while. They sort of always were. Anyone who's been to Montenegro can see that this is not an easy territory to control. It is just very mountainous. But in this case, you know, the Ottomans had some semi-level of control, but by now Montenegro is more or less independent. But the Ottomans did not appreciate their supporting an internal uprising. 
very well, and so the Ottomans invaded in response. The Ottomans were initially repulsed, but by 1862 they were victorious and forced Montenegro to accept Ottoman suzerainty, though on rather generous terms. Bulgarian culture also made some strides during the year. The first Bulgarian culture center in Karlovo was founded, and be, but because of fights between young and old people, remember we talked about the growing cultural gap between the young and the old, with young people adopting many European fashions and the old people sticking to their ways, as old people are wont to do. This basically led to the cultural center being closed after a few months. Overall, though, 1861 saw 67 Bulgarian books published in four periodicals. Now, the last event of note before we wrap up here is to say that at some point during the year, a man named Mithat Pasha was appointed governor of Nish, which is now in Serbia. He was born in Constantinople and had spent much of his childhood in Vidin and Lovech. He had traveled throughout Europe and served the Ottomans in putting down Balkan rebellions. But overall, he was a man who knew the Balkans very well and was interested in implementing reforms to improve the region. As we'll see in coming episodes, he's going to leave quite a mark on Bulgaria and its history. And that's where I'll leave off today. With a nice, neat little episode exactly covering the year 1861. This wasn't really my plan, but it just worked out that way. The Uniate Church has been curbed by the removal of its leader. The fighting between the Bulgarians and the Patriarchate is as fierce as ever. Revolutionaries like Rakovsky and Karavelov are hard at work planning revolts and the revival of Bulgarian literature and identity continues. Next time, We'll see how all these trends continue as Serbia attempts to exercise its growing power, Midat Pasha seeks to bring the Tanzimat to the Balkans, and, well, everything just moves along towards independence. So, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, though, because of the pandemic, it's been on hold for a bit, but we will get back to it as soon as we can. And, yeah. Overall, thank you all for being a great audience, and I'll catch you in the next one.